Welcome to the Extraordinary Creatives Podcast. I'm Kerry Hand, your host and creative coach. Join me each week as we delve into the journeys of creative trailblazers, aiming to inspire you to embrace your creativity and chart your own unique path. This week, immerse yourself in the world of sonography and stage design with Chloe Lumford. Known for her dynamic and unexpected performance spaces, Chloe has left her mark on prestigious venues worldwide. From the National Theatre London to Broadway, her designs captivate audiences across art forms. In our conversation, Chloe reveals her learnings from cross-cultural collaboration, previous mentors and overcoming burnout. She shares her inspiring process for considering audiences and unveils how scenery and performance intertwine to shape audiences' experience of time. Chloe has some insightful criteria for project selection and I hope you'll be inspired by her quiet confidence, unique perspective and wisdom. So welcome, Chloe Lumford. Thank you so much for joining us on the Extraordinary Creatives podcast. What an absolute treat to see you. Thank you so much for asking me, Kerry. Very happy to be here. Oh, so you're in Amsterdam right now. Yes, I am. I'm making a new production here at the moment, um, here for the next three weeks. Three weeks. Is that how long you would be generally working on a theatre production? Uh, well, the rehearsal started right after Christmas, so seven kind of weeks in total. So we sort of do studio rehearsals for a period of time. And then next week, for the kind of last two weeks, we move on stage. Um, but brilliantly, at this theatre, they've had the set built for us in rehearsals the whole time. So I've got really into all the detail of everything. Um, and then we put it on stage and light it and create the production, so to speak, as of next week. Amazing. So yeah, the fun bit. So we're going to come back to more of that, but I guess it'd be great for our listeners to understand a bit more about what do you do, Chloe? How would you describe what you do as your creative practice? Absolutely. Um, I am primarily a stage designer. Um, I've evolved through many different collaborations and guises and conversations over the last sort of 10, 15 years, but my main job is set design and sometimes costume design as well. So I create everything you see on a stage when you go and see a play or an opera. Um, sometimes I work in music. I've made various installations, collaborative projects. I've worked with contemporary artists, musicians, started doing a bit of exhibitions. Yeah, I think my main thing that I'm quite interested in is sort of, I've had a bit of a long-term argument with theatre because I get annoyed with the form of it and I like to play with the form of it and a lot of my quest over the last decade has been sort of getting in conversation with a lot of other art forms I think a lot of other art forms are really interested in theatre and storytelling we in theatre are really good at it but we're really bad at talking to other art forms <laughs> so I feel like I'm always nudging in these sort of hybrid areas mm. um, between live performance and spaces so I sort of put on my website that I make performance spaces. So I guess that might be a more accurate description of what I do. Yeah. And they're really quite remarkable spaces that you create for um, somebody's creativity to manifest over the entire space. And I wonder if there's a way for us to describe to the audience of, of how would we know it's a Chloe Lamford kind of vibe 
on stage? What would you say now you've been doing it for a long time? What would you say are the kind of core ingredients that feels like your DNA? I think I, I think I had a clearer one a few years ago. I think my work's evolved quite a lot in the last few years. Um, but I I used to sort of think of what I do as like large scale collage that I could create spaces that feel really emotional by kind of colliding strange combinations of like references and objects together and that that could create like a sense of feeling um and I work a lot with new writing I work a lot with writers themselves so I feel like you can often tell it's me if it's the I, I hope I don't know this is what I've always tried to do is that the the space that I create and the the words that go with it feel really enmeshed together but that there's sometimes often a flavor of something a little bit off about it <laughs> Yeah, so I think my aesthetic can be a bit naughty and playful. Um, and uh, I don't know, I always I always used to sort of think of it as I create feeling spaces or emotional spaces. But I think what's happening now which is quite interesting. And I don't know if it's like COVID or where I'm at in my life, but I had a more stripped back or boiled down aesthetic in the last few years. I'm looking more at architecture and more empty or more severe spaces it might just be where the world's at now but I can feel that the crazy collage years are sort of evolving into something more more precise yeah that's such an interesting (laughs) yeah no it's such an interesting way to hear you speak about that because I think you're right for I was thinking of the word incongruous when you were talking because often that off thing that you describe um where you're creating a scene or a tableau or like some kind of installation, there's often elements that shouldn't really go together that makes you think that perhaps things aren't quite what they seem. Or there's another perspective or another story or, mm-hmm. I don't know, we might get, you know. Objects. Uh, and yeah, maybe. Can you yeah. think of a couple of objects that you've brought together to kind of queer queer the space a little? Yeah, queering the space is a really good Good phrase. Um, I made a really fun show in Antwerp probably like four or five years ago with this Belgian director I worked with a lot called Lise Powells, um, who makes these kind of incredible performances with real people who perform on stage. So this piece was with two fashion models and seven young um, young people who'd been through really difficult trauma. Um, and we created like a series of backdrops that I kind of built up over time. And one was like a giant rubbish tip, one space, one's um, a Renaissance painting. And each time we sort of worked with objects in the space and kind of created these kind of sculptural combinations of things so that we'd put like out of space with like a a little boy burger sculpture that you'd see outside a kebab shop. I don't know. It was just like... um, sort of imagining that nothing could quite go together and somehow that made this like really strange feeling in the space. Yeah, I think of it like um, some of the, some slightly more surrealist collages or um, where something of the natural and the man-made is mm-hmm. often in in relationship to each other. Something about the plastic or synthetic world Mm-hmm. with the kind of handcrafted or handmade there's something usually in there there's often been some remnants or like the aftermath of something has yeah. appeared or shards of something or um evidence 
of yeah, something else. Yeah, when something's happened. Yes. So that really interests me. And I'm also just fascinated by like crafts and like weird plastic objects where you're like, somebody sat down and created that, like actually, and like just delighting like weird plastic man-made objects where you're like, where is this thing? What? What were they thinking when they invented like the Michelin man or (laughs) strange, strange things mixed together. And I always feel like there's a lot of effort in those objects and that you can sort of feel the person's hand, even though. Yes. I think I was thinking about what you were saying, where you had this like mashup of incredible things that were like, it's like a feast for the eyes and definitely felt that kind of that 2D, 3D relationship. So you can see your influence of visual artists and um, musicians and all of those different spaces so that we're getting this kind of fully rounded, experiential, sensorial space that you would create on stages. So we would have lots of different shifting perspectives. And in some of those, that movement between the cacophony of the set, if you like, that kind of um, dynamic staging that you had in your earlier work, it feels like the work is now, like you said, it's moved to a much more edited sort of uh, where there is drama, obviously, in your stage sets. But I was looking at some of the more recent work where you've created these kind of rooms above rooms or um, where there's like simultaneous action or evidence of action going on where the lighting suddenly has become even more dramatic or fine-tuned and the the props are less, but they're very specific. Um, and I'm wondering if you could think of a um, play or a performance that you've done with your as your styles evolved where you could describe your process of how did you make those editing decisions on the sets and how did you work with people to get to that point I've got something really in my head from just what we were talking about before do you mind if I jump yeah please um just to think about because often people if they come across my work they're looking at photographs but the kind of mad thing about my work is that it's it happens over time and so if there are collages of backdrops and things often it's like something then might fall down or fly and I use like old theatre trickery or old sort of theatre style of bringing things on and off but you can do that in a way that then also builds like a whole nother journey of absence or of taking things away or like I'm really fascinated in kind of creating like a dramaturgical arc with the visual world that I make that can also be about like removing those things and re-looking at them rebuilding them Oh, that's so exciting. But I can't like show that in like a portfolio or, you know, that you stuff that if somebody Googles me, that's what they get. Like you kind of go, oh, in in the in the live theatre, which you can't replicate, there's a whole other journey of time. Yes. Which is what's so utterly brilliant about theatre. Yeah, I th- I'm so glad you, you mentioned that. It's actually given me goosebumps because I, I know there will be lots of visual artists thinking about the impact of addition and subtraction over time yeah. in a space where mm-hmm. people are processing an evolution or a deterioration or, um, uh, yeah, just the fact that somebody's moving through that in real time with you is it is an extraordinary advantage, but also something that could be leveraged in other media. Totally. It's fascinating. And I think it, it's something I've often... I've talked about a lot with people 
from other mediums, like to talk about time or dramaturgy or the drama of things, because obviously my work doesn't exist without an actor or a singer or a dancer or a, an opera singer or whatever. I, it, it it can only exist in in connection to those characters. And also that I have a, a backbone of a play or an opera or a piece of music or whatever I'm creating to. It's not just come out of me. I mean, it has just come out of me, but it's not, it's also in, in connection. And so just to your set, your, to the question that I was actually going to answer, mm -hmm. um, I'm very dependent on the director of the production. And I sort of have it in my head that there's sort of two types of directors. There's ones that come with a really clear aesthetic and there's ones that go on the journey with you into the unknown together. Both I love equally working with. I have to be really good at my job, whatever. Um, but it's interesting that the, the more architectural spaces that I've been creating have come in collaboration with different directors. So it, I've been making like revolving buildings or <laughs> with this amazing Australian director, Simon Stone. Um, we created an opera um, a couple of years ago called Innocence. It's about a high school shooting. It's about the memory of a high school shooting. And the piece starts in a restaurant and ends up in a school and it kind of jumps back and forth remembering an atrocity so we created this building that could morph it was like a mid-century building that could morph from a slightly down a hill restaurant into like an international high school and it sort of does it in front of your eyes so we've hidden all of the scene changes and this crazy team of people hiding <laughs> changing all the props in the way that so that the building revolves and it, as it revolves you then you're suddenly in a classroom full of kids and then it revolves again and you're back in the restaurant so there's wow. a big strand of my work that's really in collaboration with, you know, people who have incredible visions. And I'm also a designer who responds to those briefs and worlds. And those are all part of my collaboration and my conversations as well. I'm so, so interested. I'm always in, oh, I think of it so much as I'm always in conversation. I would never be able to be an artist who could sit on my own for two years and like really get into drawing spiders <laughs> or really... But, you know, get into like, apt. I can't do it. I need to, when I talk to somebody, I I'm get full of ideas, but I, I can't do it on my own, which I think is really interesting. It is. But I think also what I'm hearing in the collaboration and the dialogue and the discursive practice that you have, I think what's really interesting to me is how you bring your own sensibility and your own lens and your own skills and tools and retain some of that so that you can serve your contribution to the whole and remain part of a, a bigger conversation. And I'm wondering on right, that. That's complicated, yeah. It is, because I think it's fair to say that despite the fact that you collaborate with so many people, you do have a style. You mm -hmm. do have, and that's, and people come to you for the way you think and the way you work. And I think what I experience working with uh, so many visual artists or even musicians or people that they all have their own sensibility and then they go into these different contexts like exhibition spaces or like different performance spaces. And it's how they retain that USP, if you like, or their DNA, not be diluted, or mm -hmm. um, but where collaboration is a combination of the strengths of those two people or three or more coming together, but where the compromise isn't such that you are dissatisfied 
with your own contribution. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah, totally. I'm absolutely fascinated by collaboration. Mm. I think loads of people think they can do it and they can't. I know. <laughs> I think that's so interesting. It is. Genuine collaboration. When I've absolutely managed to really, really collaborate with somebody, it's like really amazing. I did yeah. it once with a writer, amazing American playwright called Annie Baker, and we directed one of her plays together neither of us having directed a play before at the National Theatre. Um, and um, we had to become like a sort of two-headed beast that could meld into each other's brains and understand everything about the aesthetic and the space and the behaviour of the people in it and the way the text worked in the space and with people. And it was one of the best collaborative times I've ever had. But I think about it all the time because I think... This is going to sound ridiculous, but I think I'm really good at it. No, it doesn't sound ridiculous to say that. I think it would be my superpower. <laughs> I think it is. I concur. I I really, I'm obsessed with collaboration and I, I think of myself as very spongy. I think, I think there's something in that uh, willingness to take risks, but willingness to know when to add, when to let go, but also how to bring the best out of somebody else together and not be um not be reduced in the space together um but also be willing to have that true exchange where actually what you create is is better than either of you could have done on your own if you like that for me that feels like a real true collaboration where it just doesn't look quite like either of you it's become a third thing a third character that is greater than the sum of its parts in some ways, but also where there's been real learning. And mm -hmm. when you can tell when somebody's really enjoyed collaborating with another person or another context, because they're willing to have the difficult conversations. And it's brave to do it. It's brave and it's respectful. Mm -hmm. And that means learning how to disagree and learning how to negotiate in a way that can still get the best out of somebody and not reduce them. And you can't have any ego. Yeah. So what happens to your oh, ego, Chloe? To leave it at the door. Yeah. So how, that means that you must have some confidence about your contribution in the moment that you don't feel when you go into new collaborations that you know that you're bringing something and you're able to bend. Mm-hmm in the space without feeling like you're protecting something or trying yeah, to evidence like something yeah yes it took it took I think that takes quite a long time to get to doesn't it I think you have to make quite a lot to be able to do that or yes yeah do you also learn from bad experiences oh 100% but I think I still learn things from every single job and I think that that I heard a phrase yesterday, um, you're either winning or you're learning. Mm -hmm. I quite liked. That's really so, nice. So many creative people think like if it didn't quite go the way they wanted it to, then it's not worked. But actually, I've often found that I learn the most from things that don't go the way I expected. And or even when I found something really difficult, I've learned most about myself and what I do want or what I need to improve. And so I'm wondering what what lessons in collaboration have you learned the most from, do you think? Well, it's funny in my job because there's sort of like an immediacy of you spend ages designing it and creating it, but then there's this kind of real pressure point that comes, like you would with an 
creating an exhibition or a fashion show or anything that there's an audience coming and there's somebody coming but then you get sort of like and then the press will judge you and that whole thing happens afterwards um I can't remember what your question is Kerry I'm so sorry yeah I, I guess um maybe we'll we'll put a pin in that mm. and come back because so I'm thinking about that whose opinion you care about at the in this season of your life that's really interesting because I yeah it might have used to have been reviews and how successful the show was and somebody really brilliant who I've worked with a lot is Vicky Featherstone who used to mm. still recently ran the Royal Court Theatre and she's taught me absolutely loads and she um always said but it's about the work it's not about that and I that that has always really stuck with me and I say that to a lot of people now I'm like you've got to just get your head down and make something that you really love like make it with love or like what what else are we doing <laughs> Yeah, that other phrase. It's so like, easy to get caught up into like peer-to-peer things or what the audience will think. Or you know, I've had I've had my fair run of nasty reviews about like, like it's okay. Um, it's how, just, do, how did you deal with it, Chloe? I just feel a bit crestfallen, really, a bit sort. Of, but I don't. I try not to look so much now. But I, did, I got some quite eggy reviews for something recently, and just felt. Hmm. it's only one person writing a thing it's okay yeah did you have a good time making it did you like where it was did you feel like the audience were warm you know there's lots of other ways of looking at pieces of your work and ultimately like my work ends up as a series of photographs of live things that somebody may or may not have seen like it's yeah and I guess ephemeral my work in a way yeah, and for some of those uh, those people who've seen the work, there's a there's a, an audience, a paying audience, or a, and it's a limited mm-hmm. number of people, isn't it? So it's who happened to be in the house at the time. And then it means you can get like sort of mythological versions of things that you've made, or people go, "Oh, I loved that," and I wish you know, or I wish I'd seen that, and it becomes yes. a precious thing that you did or didn't. There's that texture of who was there who wish you know who heard it was great mm. who wrote about it and your peers so in terms of thinking about what matters to you now we talk about whose opinion matters if it's not other people's and it's yours how do you judge your own the quality of your own work now did it make me feel something or did like did it land emotionally did it did it understand the piece i was trying to communicate i sometimes think of my job is like giving a present to the audience, like giving a story. Like I have to just kind of visually give the story. So sort of finding a way to like do that in a really satisfying thought through way. Like as I, as I've got further in my career and I've been making more, more larger, more larger and more kind of complex worlds, more complex, larger stages, huger budgets, you know all of that that like really crafting that like I've got really into the job in a way Mm. which I sort of was fighting a lot a few years ago I think because I did too many things at once for quite a while um I'm now doing less and often bigger more complex pieces and actually that is incredible to be like oh I'm I'm really like getting really good at this (laughs) I'm getting really good at the job bit and that's sort of quite satisfying I'm re- I'm really enjoying you knowing your strengths and knowing what you're good at. And I really wish that the women that are listening in particular to this 
I hope you can hear that because I, <laughs> it's I taken really, me a long time to get to, but but I'm gonna I congratulate it because I really I really want creative people to know you work hard and you've grafted to learn your skills and they are they add value in the world. And so you have to take ownership when you know that you've fallen down, pick yourself up, you know, and you know, and you can see what's quality because that also is a benchmark for the next thing. So I really would like to understand a bit more um, for the listeners too about the process of making for you, because with um, I was thinking about you becoming like the equivalent of a stadium rock band in your productions that you're now doing, you know, which are epic. And so they do need more space around them, which is makes perfect sense as to why you would do less better um, in this season of your life in particular. So how would you start for those people who are not familiar with the theatrical process? Sure. How would you start if a um, a director or comes to you or a production person comes to you and says, we'd like to work with you? What's the process you go through? Um, so I always start with the script or the libretto or the book of a musical or whatever it is. Um, start at the very beginning and sort of reading it quite a few times and sort of trying to understand. Mm, I always think of it as like the smell of it, like what what the kind of energy of the piece is. Um, and it would be very dependent on my collaboration with the director because they are the other person in the relationship of creating a space on stage um, because they bring the people <laughs> and the production. Um, so I sort of start having, so I'm right in the beginning of a process now, so I'm having quite a lot of conversations. Um, I'm creating a musical, a space for a musical, um, which I'm starting to really enjoy musicals. I find them fascinating formally. Um, and also because they're so emotionally accessible, it's really interesting thinking about how music sits in a space, what the audience expect, what the form expects and sort of like playing around with it. So I'm kind of in that phase. I'm sort of thinking about like, where do all the musicians live? Like, are they in the world? Are they under the stage? Are they hidden? Do we want to see them a lot? I've just made a show where I put all the musicians in a little house that I built on stage. Um, so thinking about that I'm really enjoying working with music at the moment um so I'd sort of start off kind of then in like a kind of magpie phase I'd like look for loads and loads of references so I'd look at lots of photography look at lots of art films um and build up like a sort of look and is that that's trying to to reflect the vibe that you're picking up from the yeah text. like what I'm getting from the text exactly mm. and it and might be you... the director I'm working with has some of those as well so it's sort of yeah. like a sharing phase um, before I kind of go away and sort of work out lots of, I call it theatre maths, where it's like, okay, so where are all the audience? Like, where are their viewpoints? Where are the sight lines? Because my whatever I make has to be democratic for everyone to enjoy it. But often theatre seating is not democratic. And there's lots of people who can't see brilliantly a lot of the space. You have to be like, okay, what's my most important part of this piece that you need the most emotional access to? How do I give that to the audience? Um, so like I did a production of Amadeus a few years ago and I pushed like an entire platform of like 40 people singing and an orchestra like right up to the audience because I was like listen to this <laughs> or yeah. feel this with me or whatever it is so I, I sort of start feeling the sort of kinetics oh. of what the space needs to do and I feel like I often go in that way because of this thing I talk about of like it evolving over time I'm like so fascinated in like 
if you move a curtain and you raise it really, really slowly to solemn music, people like cry, like it's very beautiful. It makes you think of so many things. Um, so I think a lot, I think a lot about audience and I think a lot about feeling and how that can be transmitted or given to a group of people watching something with the nuts and bolts of can everybody see like if I move this piece like will it be in focus for enough people so there's like loads of really complex conversations and then my collaboration will be with the director and also with the production manager who will deliver the set with the set builders and they will help me kind of mastermind how all these elements come together I'll also be working with a lighting designer who will bring the space to life. Like I'm, I'm nothing without a lighting designer. I'm very sensitive to the conversation about light and I have lots of ideas about it, but I can't do what a lighting designer does, which is so kind of beautiful and poetic and specialist mm -hmm. in terms of a lighting designer in theatre. They're like amazing and make me look good. <laughs> they're, they're very important. Um, and I was also work with a choreographer. I'd work with sound designer, find out where everything needs to sit. So my job's very across many types of department. If I'm also doing costume, it's like wigs and makeup and clothes and what people need to feel like within this space. So you're making a whole world really with an army of people who you're not managing them, but you're wanting to facilitate them to make their best work in terms of what you're asking from them. Because I might be asking something absolutely wild from people. Yeah. Um, this is a bit nuts, but like today in rehearsal, there's a puppy that gets killed in the show and we have built like a fake puppy that gets drowned. And so today we were like working out <laughs> ways that that happens, which is grim as anything, but like my job is quite strange. Um, and so I'm completely reliant on other people. So I would make within the process, having all these conversations, I would then, we would do a lot of digital drawing. I work with associates and assistants to create technical drawings 3d models and everything but we then build a cardboard model we build a proper one to 25 scale model that's really conventional within theater we don't just work digitally it's shifting but i work with some fantastic model makers um so that the director and the actors can actually sort of understand the space before they get to it because they won't get to it till the end of rehearsal usually yeah. and then you're asking like a group of people who've been thinking about something really intensely for weeks to then inhabit a whole world <laughs> you're like sorry it's made of cheese or whatever <laughs> like yeah. get in there and they're like all these stairs feel all funny or, or whatever you know um yeah that meeting point is fascinating but I sort of start designing in theatre like nine to six months out from rehearsal opera two years out of rehearsal wow um an exhibition I did recently was a year ahead. So, but like working consistently through it. So I often have quite long lead times. And so when you're, when they come to rehearsal and they start seeing where they're going to be positioned and how the set, the set is and how they have to move around it, are you then on the set observing and tweaking accordingly for the whole of rehearsal time? So we always build like a sort of rehearsal version of the set. So like if there are stairs and doors, there's a rough version of stairs and doors and platforms or whatever, but it yeah. won't feel like the real thing. I have had it be wrong, mm. which is also really interesting. What was wrong about it? Can you I share? I built a space um, for a show and it was like kind of this very strange room with like sort of dilapidated stairs and it, and it had this little glass box at the back, which had like a whole other little world in it and it had this big frame around the front. 
um, which looked super sexy, but actually <laughs> it made the audience feel really alienated and like not part of it. Right. And it covered the whole front and then it was all like really neatly boxed in. So you were like looking into this kind of little fish tank. Um, and we got halfway through rehearsal and the director was like, I can't, there's not, you can't access it enough because mm. of the audience. And so we sort of dismantled the whole front and then you could see the sides of the set. And But that that actually felt really good. And then I have actually done that loads more times since. But it was just that thing of being brave, like, okay, we're going to take a massive bit of this space apart. Okay. Yeah. And be be brave about it. Often those like last minute things can end up really awesome. Yeah. And that's that moment of trusting your creative vision and your collaboration partner. And also that the rest of all the team of people and the 30 people who built it, that they go with you. Yeah. Because that one, that one's bonkers. Yeah. Have you had to fight for anything that you knew was going to work? Yeah. I had a floor once um, and I flooded a set. And it was all these panels of metal that were really beautifully painted. And when we flooded it, the floor was just like floating. <laughs> but it was metal panels, so I didn't understand. And I remember just like pleading with the builder, like, please, can you just help? Like, how are we going to come up with something else? I know this can work, but like, we've just got to, we've got to come up with something. Um, and it was, a, it was a show in Berlin and it, it was a bit of a fight, but we got them. You did. It, you, got the, you got your we way. We got the flooding and the floor. So from where you are now, looking at your body of work so far, which do you think represents the closest that you were hoping for yourself? There's some things that feel more the most like me mm. that really shocked me that I could make a theatre piece that felt really like my aesthetic and my world that exists in my back of my head somewhere that I can't explain. And a few times I've hit that were those those stay with me. Can you describe one? Uh, the first time I really did it was I worked with the Belgian director that I that I described before, Lise Powell's, where this kind of collaging world was really developed with her. And I made this space that was kind of part strange 70s lino kitchen, part fairground, part gymnasium, part something else <laughs> that was very disturbing. And I just all the elements came like I had a mini village that hung upside down from this like ceiling truss and all these chains and like little rocking horses. And it was very eclectic, but and it was like a seminal Scottish play by a wonderful playwright, David Howard. And I made a very true to myself world and it felt like I couldn't believe that I'd been allowed to do that in theatre. And how and was that, it received? Well, I think. I mean it was quite it was quite out there. Mm. What's the nicest compliment anyone's ever given you? Or who who gave you the nicest compliments that you hold on to? Gosh, I don't know, Kerry. That's hard to answer. It's when people have been really moved by something I've done, I think. So I haven't got like specific ones, but Yeah. It's that transformational quality that you like. Yeah. I think there was a the production that I mentioned before of Amadeus. I think I really understood something about space from doing I designed that play for a really long time. It was really hard to design. And um, when I got it right, I sort of created it and turned the play into this big opera and it had all this huge, like, spatial relationship and it felt really muscular and it felt really, really moving as a piece. And I think that I was really proud of that. That felt really clear. Clarity is something really interesting in my job because you're telling a story. Like, my job is to tell a story. Yeah. I have to be clear, as as, as clear as I can be in a kind of wonderful abstract world. <laughs> but, yeah. 
that clarity and accessibility honest yeah honest yeah I mean it's interesting isn't it because you're bending the truth in every shape and form in what you do Mm -hmm. but that knowing that an audience feels it almost like that world is supposed to be like that that's the sort of when they're amazed and transported to another universe but there's something familiar enough for them to stay with it yeah and it's also in relationship to the play or the piece that it it feels really complete yeah but it couldn't have been anything else that somehow I've managed to communicate the right feeling about the show and that's why I love working with new writers or new plays so much is because I can be in conversation with the writer or it'll sort of live alongside their words and I've had it sometimes that playwrights have like written in design ideas and there's been like a real beautiful to and fro I found that like in my career has been some of the real special plays because I was um associate artist at the Royal Court for quite a long time I worked with so many amazing playwrights and so lucky to do so and to have had relationships with that sort of tightly with the words being written feels very lucky to have done that yeah I was thinking about it might not be people but projects but um which of the projects that you've worked on would you say has tested the edges of you the most? When I first hit like really big, really big commissions and had to work out how to juggle incredibly complex people in incredibly complex, highly stressful situations, like probably hitting those big gigs. Like there's a real journey a set designer goes on from making tiny plays in small rooms with 50 people to 2,000 people at the Royal Opera House or whatever that trajectory is, the moments where you have to like pull up your boots or your socks or whatever um, and be like, I need to kind of completely reassess my practice. I need to work like a business sometimes. I need to hire people. I need to have assistance. I need to delegate. I can't look after the detail anymore. Like all of that side of the job. I think have been the massivest challenges. And they're like, you know, a lot of tricky people in the creative world. <laughs> yeah, no shit. <laughs> you have to be really like robust. Yeah. So I try, I try really hard to be joyful in a lot of situations because like it's called a play. <laughs> people are going to do this for fun, you know. <laughs> and and what's helped you to tap into your joy over such a long period of time? <clears throat> um, there's also loads of really amazing people. Mm. So like long-term collaborations, um, sort of disc- yeah, I don't know, like big job satisfaction in like creating something really complex that really lands with people or really feels like it emotionally connects to people. Like what's, learning to do that. What's helped you to develop that expertise in negotiation over creative ideas? Um, it being really difficult probably and like thinking about it quite a lot. Learning the hard way. Yeah, I think so. I think like really, you know, I've worked with some tricky, tricky people mm-hmm. and I'm very highly sensitive and it's, you know, sometimes been incredibly hard to be really brave or to be able to sort of stand up for yourself. I'm not naturally a confronting. I'm, a, I'm not a very, I'm not very competitive. I don't like fight for stuff. I think I've got my own way of approaching things, um, which is perhaps in a more kind and joyful making space for people kind of way. I've worked a lot all over the world and some different countries don't work with that and don't want you to be like that um but my general philosophy is I want people to feel that they can do their best work with me 
and that somehow if I'm into it, other people will find a way to it or they won't. But I'm very reliant on all those conversations mm. with a sculptor and a painter and they might be German or they might be Swiss or they might be Dutch and I have to still get the best work out of everyone. So I think like flexing that muscle often it just teaches you a lot about like I I I have to learn how to give like a good instruction and I think like really interestingly a lot of people really struggle with giving a clear instruction and I feel like that's something I really had to learn like what am I actually asking hold on and I think there's a way we we work in Britain which is much more collaborative and like I can talk to a scenic painter and I can be like using all these kind of squishy brilliant English words that are kind of a bit odd and wacky and then I go to an opera house in Germany I'm like I can't do that I need to be utterly clear <laughs> what yeah. I'm asking um and you just slowly have to get better at asking yeah stuff. I was thinking <laughs> as you were talking about um Dave Stahoviak who has been on the podcast before has a, a brilliant podcast called Coaching for Leaders and um he just interviewed somebody um this week in who's talking about communicating via emails and it goes back to that whole thing is that it takes effort to send a short email with precisely what you want or you're asking for or directing the person. Especially if you're British. Yes, especially if you're British. Because, yeah. Do you think you might be able to? Well, it's kind of like, and I'm sorry. You my... well. You're like, yeah, all of that. Oh, my God. I, I find emailing very stressful, actually. Most crazy so people I work with do, actually. It's the main part of our job these days. There was a really funny time when I was based at Somerset House, Somerset House Studios and me and my studio mate were both sitting around and somebody came to like film the artists at work. And they were like, what are you doing? And we're just like, we just do emails all day. <laughs> <laughs> like, Peter says no. <laughs> we are incredibly creative, but it's mainly emails. <laughs> <laughs> true and actually I think it's interesting because um David and his guests were talking about how we we don't get taught how to communicate by mm-hmm. email and that kind of collaborative or really trying to get into the space of what somebody else might want to receive I suppose is a bit like when you're negotiating with somebody and it's something that I teach a lot in communicating for creatives mm-hmm. where you're trying to add value to the other person. So if you if you just think about showing up with love for them first and you think about what would make them feel great, just start there before I you ask for anything. Literally yeah. about that with one of my associate designers who's working with me on a project and she was having to send quite a tricky email today. And so I was like talking to her about it afterwards and just like, kindness, kill the stress with kindness. <laughs> Yeah, people need it. I also make myself pick up the phone to people. Oh, that's a good I one. Ask for phone conversations because I, I don't, I don't naturally write good emails. I sort of really stress about them and worry about them. And like, if I just talk to them on the phone, I know I can be like, "Hey, look, I'm a collaborative human and nice and non-scary, and like, let's work it out. Like, help me work it out." And I yeah. can't do that email. I'm, I, I'm better at it in person, so I tr- try. Not always because I do get scared, as we all do, of difficult conversations. But I tr- I do try and pick up the phone. I, I feel love like that. Don't do that anymore. And I'm like, just ring them. Might it's be okay. such a good move. Help me figure this out. That's one of the best collaborative tools ever. Yeah. It's that nice. we're both trying to get somewhere here. Let's do it together. I love we're that. On a team. 
yeah yeah theater is such a team sport it really helps yeah I think that's that sort of that period of time where you dig deep with people do you go through like a mourning or grieving process when you leave each other Mm, I don't not in the same way as I used to I think I did much more so because I think I committed to the bubble of the thing I was in um more like theatre is really fun to make you work long hours you you know you drink together you make the show together it's very intense it asks a lot of everyone um and when it goes great it's like utterly addictive and I think I was really addicted to it for quite a long time but I would often like jump straight into another one another one another one because I got so addicted Mm -hmm. um so I sort of have lost it a little bit now the the pain of the end of a project that's because you've made some proactive choices to yeah, make changes. Yeah, I've made a lot more space in life. Um, I've got a kid now. I've moved away from London. I've sort of, a little part of me has created a boundary and slightly stepped out um, of needing to kind of be all hell for leather and lost in it. I, I sort of can't do that anymore. Um, and that's a choice as well, because I think I overdid it. I did too many things for quite a long time. And yeah. I'm paid for it with my health. So, you know, that, that's been quite a big journey to evolve. You've taken time to address your health and yeah, put yourself I, in, a, in a better position for you and for your family. Absolutely. I sort of hit like a bit of a burnout patch in 2018 um, and felt like just completely ill all the time and didn't really know what was up. And somebody recommended that I talk to this functional medicine specialist, sort of nutritional therapist who completely helped me sort it out and kind of really, I mean, it took months and months and months. And also a move out of London in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of rebuilt all my immune system. I gave up lots of foods. I gave up traveling by plane so much. I really was working in too many countries on too many things altogether. And it, it does make you ill. It turns out. Yeah. Um, so there's a really big conscious step away from that and just sort of desperately wanting space, like literal space in my life. So I moved to the seaside, um, which has made a huge difference to my well-being and a real conscious decision to sort of want to be like, I think I want family. I think I want to know there's something else outside of a gazillion addictive theatre and art from drinks. <laughs> So I do, really, but also needed something else. Yeah, I think it's brilliant that you took a decision, a proactive decision to change, but also hearing you speak about what you're working on now, that where you are more boundaries and yet you're working on bigger sort of ambitious projects. What, what are the rituals of your creativity now then, Chloe? How do you factor in your time for... Uh, family but also for your creativity and also not get sucked into that addictive dopamine hit mm. that you it, can quite easily get sucked balance, into but mm. I don't work evenings and weekends anymore and that took a really long time to get to particularly if you're you know I've worked in New York quite a bit and like if you're working on the American time zone it demands a lot yeah but I've sort of stepped into a space where I just have carved out a lot more space. I have moved my studio out of London. I don't um, sort of commute in for the studio. I've built a little shed in the garden. Right. So you um, travel to work each morning. I travel to work. Um, but my work is odd because if I'm within a show period, I'm away and I'm out of the house and I'm abroad or I'm in London. And 
if I am designing, I'm in a little shed in a small garden at seaside. So it's sort of quite an odd rhythm and it never quite finds a rhythm. It's always like, oh, I've not been in the studio for like three months now because I've been just making shows. And then suddenly I'm designing three things and I'm <laughs> in, the, in the shed for ages. Um, but yeah, I don't know, just literally saying enough's enough. Like I, I'm not going to not going to work at night. I have to I have to find a way that it fits in a day and that was about getting help so I started hiring assistants and I started handing over the work and I don't build models and I don't I can't do any of those detailed things of delivering the design I'd have to do big picture people work with me I give them feedback all the way through we build the spaces all together but I don't I don't do all of that how hard was it for you to let go of the detail it's so different because I was making these kind of incredibly intense collagey emotional spaces and that sort of set dressing like touching things <laughs> putting them together I would still always do and always be hands-on when I put that into the space but I think you know I had to find a way that I could but also like really build like long-term relationships with people who work with me work with the same people for five six years at a time until they leave me and become grown-up designers themselves but so they're people investing in people feels like a really good move are they, think, do you tend to scale and shrink according to whichever yeah, project you're working on more project based I used to have a full-time design assistant in the studio always but because now I do slightly less I sort of do it more project based like can you come and do a month or like here's a model I found this incredible model maker who lives around the corner from me at the seaside, which is brilliant. We're always like trotting down the road to each other with like spray paints and <laughs> bits and pieces. Um, so I'd say like, here's a set of drawings. Like, would you build all of this for me? And she's an incredible artist in her own right. And um, she will make, make my little mini versions of things. So yeah, I've had to completely reinvent my practice. Do you, have a, do you have a shed full of shit? <laughs> so it's just... sort of like little bits of stuff rejected versions of things and I have to every because it's quite small I have to you're not surrounded in the house by props uh, no sure. no there's a lot in the garage which I'm really in trouble with with my partner but um we'll get there you know I don't know why I keep vogues from the 80s and then like weird models that were in an art show they might come in useful like, Chloe let's face it <laughs> need them we need them yeah. It's like you get a storage unit and just make them go away <laughs> there's nowhere to put anything do you create little tableaus all around your house yeah I annoy him a lot with my stuff I just love things you set up oh. like Pepper's ghosts in the bathroom <laughs> surprise attacks of tiny dolls and it's been really fun having my daughter because I like painted her a doll's house for Christmas and I, I don't know I'm like more tiny things I can teach somebody to love tiny things really it's really good fun yeah so Chloe I know this is a it's an interesting question the sort of the money question but mm -hmm. how do you set designers earn money sort of do you have like uh union rates or do you like when you get super big and famous then you just command whatever you like how does it work um so in the UK there's like sort of an equity because there's equity the brilliant um representation for creatives in theatre um there's sort of equity in back to which are unions minimums and you start off on obviously very low fees for very small projects um but where you can start earning money is if your work gets taken up commercially or gets moved into the West End or any of those things because your intellectual rights are then paid for again. You can earn royalties um, 
and that can really help. Um, but it is a hell of a slog to get going. But your fees get bigger as you do bigger shows. Um, in the UK, generally, we're paid a lot less than we are in Europe. What sort of fees would somebody expect when they're starting out in their career? Oh, for like a pub theatre, like a thousand quid. For a, for a whole, whole show. For months of work, yeah. Yeah, wow. Or 2,000 quid. Like it's really small. Same as visual artists, exhibition yeah. fees or musicians when they're starting out. Got you. Yeah. And so as you develop your portfolio and you take more risks and you start working with more people, you get lots more word of mouth. So things start coming to you, I imagine. Yeah. Is, is there anything that you would be absolutely tickled pink over the moon if they got in touch and said, hey, would you do this for us? Oh, God, I feel I'd like to do like a collaboration with like a big musician. I've come very close to it. On a I was going to ask you if Beyonce had come knocking <laughs> yet. Um, I've come close to it a couple of times, even been attached to things that I didn't end up doing um, with really amazing people. And like, it's never quite happened. And I think that's quite interesting. And I, I wonder why. Um, but I think, you know, like sort of, I had an enormously fun time a few years ago with National Theatre Wales making a concept album into a show with um, Neon Neon with Griff Reese. Oh, yeah. Um, and we made this like whole environment that you travelled through and like sort of created this kind of crazy giant office space that like moved around the crowd. And I just was like, I love working with music. So I think like an, a big concept album yes. would be like, ah, I'd love that. Um, like, like Little Sims. Oh, I don't know. Like, just yeah, I could Someone see really weird and tasty. Yeah, yeah, phenomenal, amazing. Um, I'd love to do like a massive musical. I'm starting to do musicals more, and I'm quite fascinated by them because um, they sort of can be like really <laughs> awful, and they can be really amazing. And I'm like, what's the really amazing version of these? Yeah, um, so I think that's really interesting. I've sort of had quite a lot of brushes with opera recently. Um, I think I'm going to take a little break from operas for a bit. Mm, that's I think interesting. You learn a lot of craft on them. Do you? In what sense? Um, just the level, the amount of money that's in it. I don't mean just for me personally. I mean that, like the amount of craft people that you're working with at such a, that are such a high level mm. is amazing, and you learn so much about that. Like working with really amazing sculptors who can cast something you've come up with on a amazing. bit of paper. Like, wow. Um, but I, interesting, I don't know, I want a little break from the form. I want to come back to it, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know, concept albums, music, I love working with music. Yeah, well, all those uh, musicians listening, uh, I, re I mean, I just think there's something so exciting to think about how you perform to an audience a different audience each night but when the set is right as well and the drama um that's going to add to the atmosphere in the song and the kind of the energy of the crowd I just I can really see and feel how that might uh be an exciting adventure next all of them joining a band I mean it's great yeah that's <laughs> um, right that, and then probably some more artist collaborations I'd really like to make more spaces with artists I find yeah. that conversation absolutely fascinating Yes, and that's in that's an interesting one in terms of how visual artists collaborate differently to theatre producers because mm -hmm. there is a, I've I've met lots of artists who are more like directors than mm -hmm. collaborators 
you say, in the sense they have a really strong vision that they want to bring to life, but they want to learn and sort of benefit from the people that they're working with. But those people who really do collaborate where, again, you be, it becomes like that third space. I think it's such an exciting opportunity. I think there's something about the texture of scale and emotion and atmosphere and knowing when to pull back and when to pull forward that you're so good at that would just be amazing for visual artists um, in, you know, to really understand how you might come at things from an audience perspective. I was really thinking about how difficult it is for a lot of uh, visual artists um, in that they don't get that chance to go into an exhibition space in advance and, you know, oh, wow. yeah. knock about with it. Yeah. So I think like you, I did a um, commissioned Pipilotti Wrist, a brilliant yeah. artist years ago to do a show at Fact um, for the 2008 Capital of Culture. And I went to stay with her for a few days in order to get to know each other, and which was great. And I went to her studio and her and her team um, were building mini models of um, the Guggenheim Ooh. sort of entrance space to think about where they might put a projection, if you like. And so they'd actually done exactly that, where they were trying to feel their way through it. And they did the same um, for the space at Fact in Liverpool, where she was creating these kind of... Um, things to go on the floor and the projections were all on the ceiling. Amazing. Mm. It toured, it ended up going to the Hayward years later, but um, it's one of those environmental elements that's so terrifying for so many artists when they actually end up going to the opening of their own show and they weren't quite sure how it's going to be received by the that's audience. Hard, they yeah. You know, they don't get that kind of press night even, feel, you know, yeah. So there's something in that uh, different perspectives, different viewpoints, different ways of experiencing the same content, um, which I think is absolutely amazing and interesting in terms of what you do. Uh, one last question, which uh, I know for our audience, we've gone a little differently today because what feeds who you are now and what what you make and how you interpret and work with and collaborate obviously has its roots in where you started. So curious, where did your creative journey start, Chloe? So where did you grow up and who were you surrounded with? What were your kind of early influences? Well, I'm quite an um, odd fish in that both my parents were contemporary dancers. Mm. Um, so I had an incredibly rich artistic environment um, of people dancing which was kind of very unusual and I always felt like a bit of an unusual fish at school and because I had this kind of weird arty parents um but I know that's incredibly privileged to come in from an artistic family so we sort of moved around a lot as a kid we lived in Spain we lived in Liverpool we lived in Watford we lived a little bit in London we moved around lots and um I, uh, living in Spain, I think was a massive, we lived in Barcelona from when I was seven to sort of end of primary school. And I think that um, incredible, eclectic, Spanish, Catholic, intense, beautiful, strange <laughs> visual world, definitely, like definitely. Yes. And I also got incredibly lucky with a teacher in sixth form. We ended up living in Watford as, and as a teenager. Um, I went to his 
sort of local comprehensive there and there was this amazing guy who ran a photography department but he taught kind of like degree level photography 16 year olds and I just couldn't believe it you know to get that lucky to get that, that teacher and I was his librarian at lunchtime so I was looking at like Nan Golden, Robert Mapplethorpe, wow. um, Francesca Woodman like when I was 16 and he would like really encourage me and I was never out of the dark room and I had this sort of really tragic time when I went on foundation, which I loved, but I had to choose between the theatre and photography because they were the same week in oh. foundation year. And like in my other life, I'd be an art photographer. So interesting because the, I, I was thinking about uh, c- cinematography. Um, so when I was at Somerset House, I don't, I don't think you, you remember, but I commissioned Bradford Young cinematographer um, who worked on um, oh, loads of Hollywood amazing movies and sci-fis. And there's something about the uh, lighting and the emotional experience that you get in photography, in those photographers that you've just mentioned, mm. that really um, helps say so much with so little. And I think I can see in your current work, if anyone was to look on your website, um, Chloe Lamford, uh you can see how lighting or um, the kind of really focused attention in one zone or one area or the way something is uh, spotlit to draw our attention away from something, you can see that in those photographers. And particularly Francesca Woodman is interesting in that relationship between the sort of nature and the subject and the object, but also thinking about your dance dancer parents and that 360 degree way of looking at space and also my space is moved like they're quite choreographed yeah which I think is interesting too but also they all of your spaces do take good photographs I must say so even though you talk yeah yeah but they're so they're so painterly some of those photographs you know that they do look like scenes um or stills from a movie as well as thing and I was thinking about that whether is that something that you are drawn to like doing sets for movies or I do like the live a lot when I started out I did quite a lot of music videos and short films and but I found I was making real spaces too much and there's something about theatre that allows for metaphor and for the abstract that you can be so much more playful <laughs> unless you're really really lucky and get like a particular you know like you could design poor things but you know or something yeah. one of those incredible visual feasts but I very much was like I'm a theater animal as a designer yeah I love that I, I'm somebody who needs the abstract and the strange and there's an open-endedness isn't there in a sense or the fact almost like the drama could continue after after the audience has left there's something mm-hmm. in that um less pin the series of photographs actually of of leftover bits of theater i yeah i like those photographs very much i feel like i want to do something with them but I'm, i don't know how <laughs> but i there, there may be something in there i don't i've sort of been doing this sort of secret photography project for many years that i take pictures of things off duty when they're not on stage and i think they're really fascinating they're beautiful photographs, Chloe. And I think I was thinking about how even those empty spaces that you've captured, they're sort of still pregnant, aren't they? And kind of 
poise like there there's definitely something has just happened or is about to happen that kind of energy fascinated by that sort of presentational energy and then you take someone out of it and it leaves an energy or it leaves a space that's sort of pregnant isn't it it's yeah you can see how color plays a part in that um the sort of the journey of the viewer's eye in your photographs mm -hmm. when you're taking somebody around the photograph there's often kind of elements that are positioned in just such a way that yeah the eye dances around the space which makes me think about your staging at the same time that choreography um of the still image was really interesting I mean they call my job being a sonographer as well which I'm always quite yeah. fascinated by and I never really use and I, so I might not look into it more it's mm. used more in in Europe being a sonographer did you ever make any sets for your parents uh once twice for my mum yeah did you how yeah. was that felt strange mm. um because they grew up in like their career was in that kind of incredible explosion of contemporary dance in the 70s and 80s and that it's that aesthetic it's that world and I sort of weirdly haven't done much dance I wanted to be a dancer but I haven't designed much for dance mm. um and I guess it's too close I don't know like I sort of ended up much more in theatre and music than I have in the dance world which I find quite interesting yeah are there any other family members uh yeah there's my my brother and is is he in the arts as well he he has been and he's now doing an incredible master's in sustainability so he is going to save the planet excellent thank yeah. god for that <laughs> that's great do you think about sustainability in your work yeah we talk about it a lot um, um a lot of theaters and institutions become way more aware of it and everyone's just trying to involve it much more in the conversation i've done everything from powering a show by bicycle and using only things that belong to the theatre to incredibly huge wasteful productions like but I feel like I've been having this conversation for kind of a decade and it's interesting now it's becoming much more in the mainstream how to look after things like being responsible about where things go after they've been used I mean theatre's getting quite good at having a more circular use of things like I know that the set I did for Phaedra at the National Theatre, which was a huge glass revolving box, that glass in those structures of the frames are now being used in other productions and the glass has ended up somewhere and like somebody else has used the floor. So like it's Amazing. nice when things get shared. Are you yeah. thinking about that in the materials for costumes as well as for oh, the yeah, props? Using vintage. Yeah. Trying not to buy fast fashion in certain places that you shouldn't buy from and um or using sort of dead stock that's already in houses, just try, trying as much as you can and at least doing that first before shopping. But, you know, like a lot of timber and a lot of metal is used in set builds and it's like, can you standardise flattage or scenery? I know that the Royal Opera House have been in a brilliant conversation where they've standardised lots of stuff so they can now like make modular things that can get reused all the time. Mm -hmm. So like everyone is starting to really get to grips with it, which is great. It's great. But it's how to feel like as an artist I'm like what's the really interesting conversation is actually like how much do you restrict yourself in order to not use materials where's the conversation do you still have the world flights of fancy and make something completely crazy out of loads of plastic where, where does your where's your artistic responsibility and where's our conversation which bit do we take responsibility for because I think it's very different if the production company or the institution takes responsibility for it which is more that's what's happening and like where do we as artists 
which bit which bit are we responsible for mm. I think that's really interesting and I don't think we've all got into that conversation yet no sounds where, like... how do we I don't know because I want to make amazing stuff but like, yeah it is a challenge for so many creatives yeah I think the the storage and the life cycle of things is 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 a big it's a big challenge for lots of creatives um but it's great that you're having those conversations and trialing new op- options. Yeah. As we come to a close, Chloe, thank you so much for taking so much time to walk us through how you make, why you make, what you make um, and your experience to date. I'm wondering from all of your collaborations and all the kind of amazing creative people that you've worked with and your own creative journey, what would you say are some of your the shortcuts call it advice that you would like to offer anybody working in the creative industries today just what what would you like to have known when you were younger um as Devlin the very amazing multi-hyphenate incredible designer I used to work with her many years ago and she once said to me that moment that you get in where you hate all your work and you're really really upset she's like just go to bed (laughs) stop and go to bed and you'll feel loads better the next day. And it's just always stayed with me. That it's like, just don't get to the point. <laughs> like, just go to bed. That's Love very that. good advice. Um, and then somebody gave me really good advice about, like, having criteria for taking a job or a commission. Mm. That you should do it for love or money or career. You have to have one of them. Um, and there's various versions of that little thing. But it's really helpful to be like, do I want to work with these people like just to sort of have a check-in because often I think what's really nuts about this is like when you first take the job you're like oh my god and then after that it's like just a series of compromises (laughs) (laughs) I got a commission this is amazing and then it's just like that's the best bit yeah it's like having a check-in with yourself when you like when you take a job of like yeah I think I love it what what will I what do I get from it as well as giving all of my energy to it yeah I talked to a lot of my coaching clients about having filters mm. and that fit that really it's the same as the criteria but the filters can be different according to what season of your creative journey you're on so there will be times let's say now when you have a, a family that you know those one of those filters has to be really strong yeah. like really strong for you in order for you so if you don't like the people you know, it would be very unlikely for you to want to work with them unless the money was so good mm-hmm. and you knew it was going to keep your kid in shoes for the next 10 years, then you might consider it. But even then, I think as we get older, we realise that those filters are so fundamental because nobody else's filters are exactly the same. Mm-hmm. So it has to be through your own lens and your own experience and what's great and exciting for you might be an absolute nightmare for the next person so um but you have to live with it at the end of the day don't you you have to look yourself in the mirror and say well I knew they were a dickhead I took the work it was a nightmare but do you know (laughs) so we've all done it overridden overridden our filters and we paid the price for it so that gets to a point in your creative career when you have to ask yourself, like, is it worth one of those things? And I think that's a brilliant way to end. And here's to choosing more joy, more yeah, fun. Absolutely. And hopefully the money comes too, Chloe. Yeah. Thank, Thank you so you. much for taking so much time with us today. Such pleasure. a pleasure.
Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. I greatly admire Chloe's commitment to true collaboration, her insights into what it takes to really excel in this realm and her unwavering focus on enhancing the audience's experience through her mesmerising sets. Her remarkable self-awareness shined as she candidly discussed both her strengths and experiences with burnout, always with a blend of self-compassion, kindness and confidence that is frankly a breath of fresh air. Chloe's dedication and expertise, combined with her curiosity and openness to learning, earn her the trust and respect of her peers. She not only embraces her own expertise, but also encourages others to do the same, fostering a culture of confidence and empowerment within collaborative endeavours. I appreciate her clear boundaries and the enthusiasm she exuded when discussing future projects. Her clarity on what could lie ahead sparked excitement and serves as a beacon for attracting new adventures. Please follow and share the podcast. It helps us to support more brilliant creatives like you. Recommend future guest suggestions in your reviews. They might well become part of our show. Thanks for being part of our creative community. Until next time. Thank you.